Welcome to the Synopsis Podcast, where we break down the history, economics, culture, and geopolitics surrounding the world's other superpower. I'm Michael. And I'm Sam. And in today's episode, we are going to be talking about India and China. In mid-June of 2020, a physical brawl erupted between Chinese and Indian soldiers in Kashmir, claiming the lives of several soldiers on both sides. These casualties are the first suffered between these two major powers since the 1960s, further complicating what were already rising tensions between the two sides. Today, we want to take a look not only at how all this happened, but also at the broader geopolitical context between these two giant and nuclear-armed nations. Yeah, so if you've been paying attention to the news lately, you probably heard about this brawl. It was remarkable not only because of heightened tensions between these two great powers, but also because of how medieval it was. Because of the nature of the border, which we will get to in a little bit, no firearms were engaged here at all. Um, instead, soldiers beat each other to death with fists, used metal bats, threw each other off cliffs, and several died of hypothermia. It was not a huge brawl. I believe it was about 20 on the Indian side, 40 on the Chinese, but it was still really remarkable just by the nature of what took place. Yeah, that 20, those numbers refer to the number of dead as well, not necessarily the number of people participating in the brawl, but yes, we have a confirmed about 20 dead on the Indian side and an unconfirmed number of Chinese. They confirmed that they had casualties, but they did not release the numbers. Intelligence intercepts suggest a number anywhere between 35 and 40. However, so to mention, this happened in the Himalayas. In, Ka- in Kashmir, in yeah, the Western Himalayas. In the Western Himalayas, uh, in Kashmir, uh, along the Indian and Chinese border with Tibet. Um, Tibet being a Chinese-administered province of China. Um, and to understand this brawl in the greater context, it's important to understand how important Tibet is. Not only is it extremely high up, again, think the Himalayas, making it very defensible, but also it's a major watershed for all of Asia. I believe uh, nine major rivers used in either irrigation or navigable, etc., all stem from Tibet and intersect with tons of other countries, including India, Bhutan, Nepal, etc. So the nation that controls Tibet has a tremendous amount of geopolitical leverage over the area. Yeah, here in the United States, when we think geostrategic resources, the first word that comes to mind is oil. Um, Believe it or not, there is one other resource out there that's actually even more important than oil, and that's water. And this is is really what Tibet is all about. Um, Water being important not only for just general drinking and agriculture, but also for hydroelectric power. And China has been very aggressive in their dam building lately. Um, So anyways, Tibet is of tremendous military and economic importance to the Chinese state, despite its relatively sparse population. Yeah, and the fact that this borders India in several areas uh, causes a great deal of tension between these two powers. Anyway, though, um, let's kind of take a step back and figure out how did we get here. We're really going to be talking about India and China in the modern context. There was not a tremendous amount of exchange between the two, um, you know, earlier than the 1950s. There was obviously Buddhism and the Silk Road, but China and India really come into much closer contact in the 1950s after the Second World War and the establishment of the modern India state and the People's Republic of China under the Communist Party. 
right, Indian relations vis-a-vis the rest of the world was one of general neutrality. At least that's what they shot for in the very beginning. Um, There were a lot of ups and downs between China and India. Um, You might have expected a lot more contact between the two sides, but... It's, it's really not until the 1950s when things start to pick up in any particular way. In this case, uh, India actually became the very first democracy to recognize the People's Republic of China, that being the communist government of China. So that was pretty notable. Up until that point, Western nations were still recognizing the exiled government in Taiwan. We're going to be talking a lot about Chinese and Indian tensions, but they didn't start off necessarily on the bad foot. Again, there's that recognition. Uh, The Indian prime minister had visions of a resurgent Asia under five principles of peaceful coexistence. So it's not like these two countries were, from the start, doomed to conflict, really. Right. And And the first point of tension that really boils up is actually mostly as a result of the Soviet Union's actions and the Sino-Soviet split uh, more generally. For those who are a little bit unfamiliar, the Sino-Soviet split was an occurrence in the 1950s after the death of Stalin when the Soviet Union and China nearly came to a hot shooting war. Like, Despite being communists, they were not both on friendly terms uh, for all of their time. And it is in this context that despite India's ostensible neutrality, to the rest of the world, the prime minister decides to make his first significant diplomatic visit to Moscow and not Beijing. Yeah, and that is seen as an affront to Beijing. But tensions between India and China also really ramp up with the Chinese annexation of Tibet in the 1950s as well. It's the early 1950s when they annex Tibet, and it's later on when protests in Tibet grow more severe that they crack down and the Dalai Lama, being the spiritual and political leader of Tibet, flees and is granted asylum in the Indian state. Yeah, and this is really important to reiterate. First of all, it's funny. Um, that's the same Dalai Lama that's out today. You know, we think of him as just the smiling, happy-go-lucky spiritual leader, but he is the political leader of Tibet. So India offering him refuge and allowing him to essentially rule in exile from India, where he still resides today, is seen as a huge issue in Beijing because, again, they claim the territory of Tibet as sovereign Chinese territory. And the Indian government's tacit rejection of that by allowing the opposite political leader in the Dalai Lama to continue to rule well in India is a huge affront to Beijing. Yeah, he's not just a political escapee. He's running a government in exile and did up until fairly recently. Um, And to give you an idea of just how much this angered the Chinese, um, given the strategic importance of Tibet, Mao had his propaganda wing print out a whole bunch of material stating that the Indians were attempting to wrest territory away from them in Tibet, you know, just subvert them generally all over the place. That was the claim. Like, the Indians are, are coming for us. And it's, it's worth bringing up that this is not totally baseless action on the Indian side. Tibet historically had served as a buffer region between classical China and classical India. So the Chinese annexation of it is definitely a threat to India because it moves the Chinese into a defensible position right on the Indian doorstep. Now, this all comes to a head in 1962 in what's known as the Sino-Indian War. And Mike, why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, it's when that defensible position finally comes to serve the Chinese well. Um, A little bit of tit-for-tat happens in the early 1960s. Um, And then in 62, the Chinese sort of surprise attack across the border in India, um, all across the border. It's a very long one. And the end result is a strategic Chinese victory. Uh, They only take about one third of the casualties that the Indian side, um, the borders more or less stay the same. There are a few changes, like most notably China retains control of their 
sliver of Kashmir, which is where the most recent brawl took place. Yeah, and as a really quick interjection here, a lot of this episode is going to pertain to borders, geographic areas, and all this sort of stuff. So at any point, we recommend pausing and taking a look at a map because it's obviously very difficult to convey what exactly we're talking about over audio, but just keep that in mind. No, it's a big messy jigsaw puzzle. A lot of long ill-defined borders, just lines on a map, left drawn by a bunch of British, pe- British people. <laughs> Lots yeah. of long, crooked lines dr- dr- drawn by people with even more crooked teeth, I will tell you. Mm, um, yes. <laughs> that was a lame joke, but I uh, it. uh, okay. So, uh, the next... There, there, there are a few other skirmishes between India and China. Like the, the only other one with casualties happens in the late 60s. This time, the casualties are maybe in the hundreds as opposed to the thousands that there were in the first war. Yeah, exactly. And this takes place in 1967 and is called the Kloa Incident. Um, and this, this time, it's in the second region of India, which, if you look on a map, is this one area that kind of protrudes out from the rest of the mainland Indian Peninsula. And because of its nature, it's about 30 kilometers wide at its narrowest stretch, would be easily severable by Chinese or perhaps Bhutanese Nepal aggression in the area. Specifically, well, specifically, let, let me let me clarify that. This conflict takes place in Sikkim, which is a really small bit of land that lies between Bhutan and Nepal. Um, so this is in East India. Um, Sikkim by itself doesn't hold a tremendous amount of value, except that it overlooks the very, very small, easily severable part of India that connects it to the east of India, which is a place where about 45 million people live. Again, look at a map. So all this to say is what really makes the conflict notable in 2020 is that it had been close to 50 years since there had been blood spilt on the Indian-Chinese border. Obviously, there were still tensions, but ever since the Kloa incident in 1967, both the Chinese and Indians had taken progressive steps to at least reduce the tensions as much as they could. A big part of that was the dearmament of the border. Troops were not allowed to carry firearms, which is, again, why this brawl in 2020 was so crazy in its nature. Overall, the border has been fairly static. Uh, Both China and India, as well as Pakistan, who is about to enter the picture in a big way, um, agreed to this line of actual control. That's what you're going to hear it called, the line of actual control. This serves as the de facto border between all these countries, despite the overlapping claims that they still... Uh, hold on to. So now I would like to jump right into the Games of Thronesy type stuff going on uh, in this part of the world with all the intertangled friends, frenemies, alliances, wars, drama, generally speaking. Yeah, and the biggest other player in this besides China and India that we've been exclusively talking about thus far is Pakistan. You cannot understand the Chinese-Indian relationship without understanding how Pakistan figures into all this. Chief among that is the intense animosity that India and Pakistan share for each other. At the time that they were a British colony, well, they were exactly that. They were together in a British colony, Pakistan and India. Uh, They were separated by, again, British-drawn lines (laughs) as the British fled (laughs) the Uh, subcontinent (laughs) four wars later. Um, So... So Pakistan and India almost immediately go to war over Kashmir, which was, again, ill-defined in its borders. In addition to that, they fight several other wars pretty much all the way up until the current day. Like they, Even recently, they've exchanged airstrikes and, and whatnot, and insurgents will travel back and forth between the borders. It's, it's, it's one of the most heavily armed areas on the planet, right up there with the Korean demilitarized zone, quote-unquote. Uh, in fact— 
yeah, quote-unquote demilitarized. Um, you might even call the, the Kashmir area more intense because there have actually been several hot shooting wars in that part of the world, as opposed to Korea, where they get on loudspeakers and yell memes and stuff at each other or whatever it is that happens. So with all this out of the way, China supports Pakistan, and that is a huge point of contention between the Chinese and Indian relations. There's a whole host of reasons why China is a backer of Pakistan, which we'll get into for just a second, but the rest of the relationship isn't going to make any sense if you don't understand that one key point, that throughout most of the modern history of Pakistan, China has been one of its biggest supporters. So I'll try not to make this too complicated for the listener. I know it's a lot of dates and a lot of players involved. So India and Pakistan get split, immediately fight a war, and then only a few more years pass. We get to 1965, and they fight a second major war. And this is the one where China threatens to get involved on Pakistan's behalf. This will not be the last time that they threaten to do exactly that. So basically know that this has not endeared India and China towards each other and really complicates India's attempts to remain not aligned on the world stage. So it's not just military involvement that typifies this relationship. There's also a tremendous amount of economic investment being thrown back and forth. Um, You will hear this term quite often on this show going forward called the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, This is a series of aggressive foreign investments on the part of the Chinese abroad in places like Africa, Europe, Asia. So much has been made of China's investment into Africa. People are calling Africa China's China now. And But in terms of actual dollar figures, China's direct foreign investment in Pakistan actually exceeds that of the entirety of Africa. And this is not just buddy-buddy friendship. Pakistan is tremendously important for China because Pakistan has access to the Indian Ocean. And China being a major world exporter, shipping goods, etc., it's currently in a tenuous position based, and this is a little bit beyond the scope of the podcast for today, but it's currently in a tenuous position with its existing shipping routes as geopolitical tensions ramp up with other powers. So China is really looking to connect Beijing all the way through Xinjiang and Tibet down to Pakistan in order to access the Indian Ocean. I actually want to throw a little term at the listener here. If, if you want to understand the sort of Western standoff between China and India, it's because of this thing called the Malacca Dilemma. The Straits of Malacca is a very narrow naval choke point dominated by Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia. Um, And right at the end of that choke point lies a couple islands controlled by India, who does have a capable navy. So the short and sweet of this is that at any time that conflicts break out, India could choke these straits off, and 30% of all maritime trade passes through these chokes. Like Something like 80% of China's oil comes through here, so it's, it's not an option for China to have this closed off, uh, and they're vulnerable to an Indian blockade. However, China still has the larger and better equipped military as well as the stronger economy. In addition, they control the majority of Tibet, so they have the strategic high ground in the situation. Uh, If a blockade were ever to happen, they could start trouble on India's northern border that India would be hard-pressed to deal with. Uh, It's especially worth pointing out that India's most geographically vulnerable region in its northeast is connected to the rest of the country by a very narrow strip of land which sits directly south of one of these contested areas with China. So in the event of hostilities... Um, India could very well lose access to that region, which is home to 45 million people. Uh, So all that is to say, neither China or India have a particularly appealing option for going on the offensive uh, vis-a-vis one another. 
So we mentioned the scope of the amount of money being thrown at Pakistan. Uh, how about a little real-world example to really solidify your understanding of this? Currently, Pakistan relies almost exclusively on its port in Karachi uh, for naval imports. However, they have another small port called Gwadar, a little bit west of Karachi, that China is throwing godly amounts of money at. Currently, the port's capacity is about 1 million tons of cargo per year, and once Chinese plans are finished, it will balloon up to 500 million tons. So that's a growth of 500 times. <laughs> yeah. Again, just really highlighting how important China sees both shipping and Pakistan to its continued success. And that's just going to remain a civilian port, right? No military use whatsoever, Oh, of right? course not, no. China would never intermingle its military and civilian. <laughs> <laughs> it would never mix its economy with its military. What are you talking about? It would that's never not, do that. They don't do economics as a form of warfare. What are you, what are you they, on about? Crazy. They don't have private shipping vessels patrolling In, the Info South. Wars just called. They want their commentary back. Yeah, China definitely doesn't have civilian shipping vessels patrolling the South China Sea, making it you know, aggressive stances. Ramming Vietnamese fishing boats. and. <laughs> okay. that's, that's not anything they do. What are you talking about? <laughs> I don't want to be too heavy-handed with this, but yeah, you see where we're going with it. Um, yeah. Right. Uh, okay. So l let's move on to some other current news. After this recent clash in the Himalayas that took the lives of several Indians and Chinese, uh, troop numbers skyrocketed in the region. Uh, tens of thousands on both sides have been stationed. Uh, now, for reasons that we'll discuss in a bit, we don't actually expect the situation to escalate. We think this is mostly just symbolic. Um, but other things like Russian weapon sales to India. Hey, guess what? Russia's actually India's most steadfast ally in the world and has been since its inception. Yeah, and that's just like every day. And that's just like real this is not like super relevant to the episode, but it's just funny to point out. India ranks very highly in the favorably perceived nations for like US citizens, but you know, it's it's funny because the US is not India's most steadfast ally. Russia is. Several times in Indian Pakistan conflict, we've sided with Pakistanis, much to the chagrin of Indians, and India buys most of its military equipment from Russia, not the United States. Yeah, two two thirds of its armament all come from Russia. Most of it's just ex Soviet stuff, but still. Yeah, and and and, and as long as we're on like fun factoids. Most of it is old enough to be considered an antique at this point. <laughs> Vin yeah, most of it's vintage. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> um, yeah. On the subject of why India and China don't want to go to war, it's because you know India is still cleaning the rust out of their rifles. We'll touch on this a little bit later, but China's economy is about five times as big as India, despite the fact that they have very comparable populations. But India is trying to change that, you may have heard. So, believe it or not, Donald Trump is not the OG of banning TikTok. Uh, <laughs> the idea. <laughs> Uh, that was put into practice by Prime Minister Modi of India right after this brawl happened. They immediately dropped the hammer, banned TikTok along with something like, what, 59 other Chinese apps, I believe, with TikTok and, TikTok, TikTok, <laughs> TikTok and uh, WeChat being the most uh, prominent. It also looks as if Huawei's 5G is not going to be welcome in the country either. Yeah, and India also rolled out very stringent foreign investment law uh, only pertaining to countries that border India. And the subtext being, let's just say India is not worried about huge amounts of Bhutanese foreign investments in the country. No, it's, <laughs> yeah, if you're a country that borders India, now you have to have official government approval for all kinds of investments, not just like high-level military or aerospace type stuff, just anything. And like Sam said, it ain't like they're going to be scrutinizing Nepal yeah. all that much. Uh, I don't think that's the intent of the rule. Yeah. Um, right. So you, you touched a little bit on the economy of the two. Are there any other numbers that you want to highlight for us? 
I could nerd out about this all day, but I am not going to bore the listeners with it. Um, the important thing to understand is that China, due to really gangbusters growth over the past 50 years, has an economy about five times larger than India, despite being almost the same in term, terms of population. Uh, China is the most populous country in the world with uh, 1.4 billion people, and India is right behind it at number two with 1.35. Despite that, India's economy is only $3 trillion and China's is $15 trillion, so significant disparities there. Um, and this is really, again, just because of the huge amount of growth that China has experienced over the past uh, 50 years or so. Right, and it seems like a lot of that economic disparity in the modern day uh, seems to be due not just to their relationships with different countries, um, but I think China just has a much easier environment for businesses to operate, at least at the low end of things. Yeah, it's so funny because it's the Communist Party of China. China's a communist state, and it's like, sort of... They're, anyth- they're anything but communist until you get to a certain size. Yeah, and even company. then, even then, it's not communist. It's more just like, you better be cozy with the, the party or else... More just like cronyism ramped up to a 15 out of 10. Yeah, meanwhile, India's book of regulation is so thick that if you were to drop it on somebody from even a medium height, you would probably kill them. It is just like... A- <laughs> Really difficult environment uh, to do business in India. It's for this reason that despite both our huge population centers, that China has seen so much more foreign investment over the past 50 years, even despite you know nominally being communist. It's just like the business environment in India is not really conducive to growth. I gotta wonder if that's a switch that could be flipped. I don't know how easy it would be. I'm not I'm no expert on Indian legalese. Uh, but you know, if you're if you're wondering, there's been a lot of talk lately about oh, with coronavirus and China's mishandling of its initial outbreak, you know, we should just decouple. Everyone should decouple from China and move their manufacturing to other places like good old India. We love the Indians. Um, well, we don't know if that's a viable option for a lot of people. Yeah, especially big businesses. There's all this noise being made about intellectual property theft in China and, you know, how in order to do business in China on a large scale, you have to enter into joint ventures with Chinese-owned companies. But India has its own problems in terms of that as well. Uh, Walmart invested many billion dollars into India growing its operations, and then the Indian government at the drop of a hat flipped its economic regulation pertaining to foreign investment and basically crowded Walmart out. Yeah, and they're not and they're not the first American company to have this happen, or, or just international company in general. I'm sure Europeans have tried and been bitten in the same way. All, all that said, you know, I do want to highlight one really key strength of India, which is its English language, um, due to its former colonial status in the British Empire. At least uh, one good thing they left yeah, them, Yeah, right? exactly. One good thing that they left them. <laughs> is a huge English-speaking population. And that's really important. At least today, English is the language of international commerce, and having a huge percent of your population speaking English is a huge boom. Anecdotally, you know this. Think about Indian call centers that we've all experienced. We may get frustrated and annoyed and laugh at it or whatever, but that's actually a huge part of India's economy, not necessarily the call centers, but what that represents insofar as those are good middle-class jobs available like inside, indoors, in an office, air conditioning, etc. That is really made accessible just by virtue of the fact that you got a population fluent in English. Right. So that might become a strength. Like there's definitely potential in India to take off. Uh, No promises being made at this point in time. And one last thing I want to highlight about Indian growth is that even though its economy is currently much smaller, that doesn't mean that over time it can't grow much faster. Um, Huge chunk of the Indian workforce is involved in like this very, uh, you know, essentially dirt farming, agrarian economies, like, you know, all by hand and stuff, et cetera. So, you know, so India definitely has huge potential for growth, even though it's not unlocking it now. You may see all this talk in the news of, oh, Chinese growth is slowing and India's beginning to overtake China in terms of the rate of growth. It's worth pointing out that 5% growth of 15 is a whole lot bigger than 7% growth of three. 
yeah, and and those are the those are the numbers that we're actually talking about. Uh, just multiply them out to the billions. So all this to say, if you're wondering, back to the topic of the show, if you're wondering if this is going to erupt into something more broad, given both the military stalemate and the fact that India currently is a lot more focused uh, on its inward economic development rather than you know expansion or getting buck with China, we don't see the incentive between either China or India to escalate this. Yeah, a really good example of the problems that India needs to address internally is there is no good road between Delhi and Mumbai. Like, that's like saying there's no good road between New York and D.C. Like, what are you doing? Yeah, no, it's... They, they've got a long way to go in a lot of important areas. You know, education's another one that they, they talk about quite a lot. This all despite the fact that, yeah, in the course of researching for this episode, I noticed a lot of really hawkish Indian news um, covering what had just happened. Like The majority of it was very, very, I guess, Indian right-wing party. But the tone of the politicians has been largely conciliatory. Uh, China, of course, is like, Oh, look at our great historic friendship between our beautiful China and India. We've always been such tight friends. Never mind that time that we killed thousands of you. <laughs> we've, we've, or <laughs> threatened to, I don't, I don't know. I, this is not likely to be the World War III flashpoint. China has traditionally been slow and steady in its expansionism. Usually when somebody challenges its territorial claims, it backs off and then continues to expand slowly elsewhere just until long enough that the attention dies down and they can get right back to it. This definitely characterizes what happened at the border. If you're curious about how all this stuff happened, uh, well, it started over roads. That's mainly what's happening here. Uh, One side begins to creep construction on its own or the other's side. And then the other will confront them. And in the past, these differences have been rectified without coming to blows. But I don't know. This time, the Indians noticed a couple tents being pitched on the Indian side of the line of actual control, went to confront the Chinese. And for whatever reason, this spilled over into the brawl that we saw recently. Yeah, and the rest is history, as they say. And we we said this before, but just want to reiterate it one more time for this episode. India has a lot of internal growth still to do and is not and can't really concern itself with outwards aggression or expansionism or anything like that until it gets its own house in order. So for these two reasons combined, China's pulling back from confrontation when it does occur in India's need for internal development, we don't really foresee this kind of evolving past the point that it already has. That's right. So for perhaps the first and last time on this show, you're going to get a happy ending, <laughs> as happy as that is. A couple people die, but it won't lead to a world war. That's good news in, in 2020, <laughs> is it not? Uh, <laughs> yeah. so, so anyway. We want to th- well, I, we want to thank all of our listeners today for tuning into the Synopsis Podcast. I'm Michael. And I'm Sam. And until next time, remember, nothing is to be feared, only understood. <laughs> Synopsis Podcast is co-hosted by Sam Bach and Michael Williamson. Produced by Mark Fusito. Artwork by Eli Bach.